Amen. Gage, I'm going to give you this. What's up, Auburn Community Church? Man, it is a treat and privilege to get to be here, truly. I want to welcome uh, Lake Martin Campus, Huntsville Campus, Birmingham, and of course, everybody in the room. Let me start by saying, when I say it's a treat, it is an honor. I have known and loved Miles for some time, for years now, and to see what God is doing here is amazing, and have been rooting you guys on, have prayed for this church, have been encouraged and strengthened personally by this church for years. And so keep going. It is just, it's amazing to see how God has his people everywhere and that there are people who have not bowed the knee to the uh, world and the prince of the power of darkness around us. And so truly it is a privilege to get to be here. Like he said, I've been on staff or was on staff for 13 years leading at the porch, a young adult ministry in Dallas, Texas, a part of Watermark Community Church. My wife and I actually just took a leading and teaching role with City Bridge Community Church in Plano, Texas, in case you know anybody in Plano. That is where we announced actually last week. So this is all a new endeavor. But I've been married to my wife, more importantly, for the last 10 years. Here's a picture of her and my three kids. That's Callie. We've got a seven-year-old boy named Crew, a four-year-old daughter named Monroe, who is already causing me a lot of anxiety and concern about the future and just the firecracker that she is. And then a one-year-old son named Bear, who is like 15 months and in that stage of trying to walk, which it may be a while for him because his head is in like the 99th percentile and his legs are like sticks. So he's just, he can't keep himself stable, but... More importantly, we're going to dive in to Acts chapter 3, and if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to do what you're accustomed to and familiar with, which is raise it up in the air and open it to Acts chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through verse 16. So if you have not had a quiet time, you are about to get one in right now, because we're going to cover a good amount of verses Starting in verse 1, as we continue through the journey of the early church, it says this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now, there was a man who was lame from birth who was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him and asked to John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from him. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. This man goes from lame to now leaping. When all the people of God saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were all filled with wonder and amazement what had happened. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them into the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us 
as if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him, that's Jesus, over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer, Barabbas, be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Any Texans in the room here this morning? Let's go, man. Say that again. Raise your hand. If you're from Texas, raise your hand. Gosh, man, my people will love it. Any, anybody from Dallas in here? Okay, so I've been in Dallas the last 13 years. I'm actually from Houston, but I went to the University of Texas A&M, who shares a passionate dislike of the University of Alabama for everybody in Auburn in here. And after I graduated from Texas A&M, I got a phone call from Watermark, which is a church in Dallas. And basically they pitched an idea, hey, if you'll come here for a year, we will pay you to disciple you. And man, that sounded pretty awesome. They didn't tell me how much they would pay me, which was about nothing. But at the time, you know, you're in college, you're like, man, that sounds like an awesome opportunity. So I pack up my stuff, graduate from college, head up to Watermark. And they told me that they had arranged for me to have free housing with a family in the church body. And they had a back house. And so I drove and got the address, showed up to the house. And it was like the moment from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which a lot of you guys don't even recognize, but where you're pulling up to the house around seven or eight and there's Aunt Viv and, you know, Carl. It was in a state like I had never seen before. I mean, this house was unbelievable. It was quite literally in a state. In fact, it was located on a street in Dallas known as Billionaire's Row. So I was very quickly like, man, my, my new family, can you adopt me? Can I be a part of this forever? And they began to introduce me to some of the neighbors or tell who was around because I was just like shook. I mean, this was crazy. The inventor of something called Hefty Bag. Anybody ever heard of this? His son lived across the street. There's a basketball player named Dirk Nowinski who lived a few houses down. Across the street from him was someone named Ross Perot, which... If you're older than 35, you may recognize. If you're not, you may have seen pictures of a guy with big ears that lived, you know, 20 years ago, but had tremendous, tremendous wealth and was involved in politics and on and on and on. And I'm, I remember sitting with their son, who was a senior in high school at the time, and kind of just processing like, hey, bro, you know this is like not normal, right? Like this is not how most people live. Like these massive, massive homes and to have neighbors that are just this wealthy is crazy. And he says oh, these homes have nothing on the house next door. Now, I hadn't seen the house next door because they had these huge walls, and he began to describe it to me and say, it's, it's a house unlike any other house anywhere in Texas. And he lays out some of the stats about this house. Here are some things that were a part of it. It took eight years to build. At the time, it was the most expensive house ever built in America. It was 70,000 square feet. Now, if you're not good with like numbers or don't exactly know what that means, a massive home would be 7,000 square feet. This is 10 times bigger than that, 70,000. The master suite alone was 3,000 square feet. 
with two custom marble tubs carved in Verona, Italy, from a single block of Carrera marble, like the statue of David. It had a 17,000 square foot basement, 6,000 square foot pool with a volleyball pool and a lap pool, because you can't do laps in the volleyball pool. <laughs> a 16 car garage with its own indoor car wash, a wine cellar with 20,000 or held 20,000 bottles of wine, 21 seat home theater. The grand staircase alone cost $300,000. It was constructed in 2004. Four pool table rooms, just, you know, because you can't have just one pool table. And my favorite, a gift wrapping room. <laughs> when you are either giving away so many gifts or you have so much wealth that you're like, we can't wrap these gifts in the living room. We need an entire room devoted to wrapping the gifts. And that's exactly what they had. To top it all off, at the front of the house was a 2,600 square foot guard home where they had full-time security that lived. And I'm hearing all this, I'm like, dude, that is crazy. You're right, it does put every other house, it pales in comparison to that. And he asked, do you wanna see it? It's a next door neighbor, a property line backs up. We can go behind the property line and you can go see it. And he takes me over and I'm like, of course I wanna go see it. So we walk over there and right as we pull up to the edge of the property line, he points and there's nothing there, a slab of concrete. I was like, where's the gift wrapping room? Where's, the, where's all the stuff? He said, two weeks before everyone was supposed to move in, they were putting these final coats of paint on the top floor and these huge windows acted like magnifying glass and everything went up in smoke. It was the largest insurance claim in home history to that point and because of all the debate around what happened and no one ever lived in that home. It wasn't reconstructed. And this French jeweler who ended up owning it just continues, there was battles over that. Now what does that have to do with Acts chapter three? Well, the big tragedy in that scenario is this home is amazing and incredible as it is to hear all that and it's just mind blowing. The tragedy is that house and home, it never fulfilled its purpose. Because the purpose of a house is not so that people would sit and hear and be amazed at the, the lap pool or the volleyball pool. The purpose of a house is that people would live inside of it. Apart from that, it may be impressive, but it's pointless. Because the purpose of any home and any house is that people would be a part of it. That the purpose of gift wrapping room is that gifts would be wrapped inside of it. Not that it would impress people as they hear about it. And I think we live in a day and age where just like in that scenario where it's a tragic thing for something to not fulfill its purpose, aka a home, way more tragic is for a person to live their life and not fulfill their purpose. Because you can get another home. You don't get another you. And the good news is God put you on this planet, and my guess is most of us know that, for a purpose. And yet many people that you live and move and act and work with around every day are not experiencing it. I would, ask, I would dare to say most people in life go through their entire life and they never experience the purpose they were created for, which is a far greater tragedy than a house never filling its purpose. 
And today, I want to talk about that idea of attaching purpose and specifically pointing people to Jesus being a part of the purpose which God has you on the planet. And my guess is, despite all the anxieties, the struggles, the hardships inside of the room, that if you are pointing people to Jesus, you're experiencing in an internal level, despite the challenges that you may be walking through, a satisfaction because you're attaching purpose to your life. And no matter what God has in front of you, and maybe you're a senior in high school, or maybe you've been here for a long time, or maybe you're an empty nester, God is not done with you, and he has a purpose for you. And so I want to enter into that conversation, because in the story, we see the purpose of the miraculous in our life as this man gets healed. We see Peter being purposeful in the moment after that healing takes place. And then we see an incredible purpose in the messaging of the New Testament church, of the early church. And so we're going to walk through those three ideas, and I just want to go through them a little bit slower as we look at this incredible story of the early church. If you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you haven't been a part of the last few weeks, we've been journeying through the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 1, Jesus basically sets the church up and says, you're going to go to the ends of the earth, and you're going to be my people. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and thousands of people, after Peter preaches this fire message, get saved, quite literally fire message, pardon the pun. And then we're told the early church just is devoted to one another, And we're seeing all the different ways God is at work inside of their midst. And in Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and John walking along and going into the temple and seeing a man. And I'll read it again. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. So Jews in that day would pray three times a day. He's going into a temple where people were gathering and would gather religious people in that time would gather three times a day to pray with other people. I'm going to come back to why that's important here in a second. But they're going in to have prayer with other people. And as they're walking in, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple, the gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going in the temple courts. This man who'd been lame his entire life, set at that temple gate by friends or by family, And then Peter and John start walking up, and he looks at them, and he's expecting them to give him some money or give him something because they're looking right at him, the text tells us. And Peter says, I don't have any money to give you, but here's what I do have. He says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw it, saw him walking and praising, they recognized him as the same man who used to have been sitting in the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Chapter 4 is going to tell us this man had been lame for over 40 years. Here's what I want to talk about in this first section of the text is God's purpose in the miraculous. Because you've experienced, if you're a follower of Jesus, miraculous, just like I have inside of my own life. But first, this man has this miraculous event take place in his life. He's looking for pocket change, and he just got life change. That he does go from lame to leaping. A man, I want you to think about. This is a real person who spent 40 years unable to walk. His childhood, in other words, when, when he was a toddler, and I talked about my son, you know, learning to walk. There was no learning to walk phase. When other kids began to run and play, 
He could barely crawl. As people grew up and they went to synagogue or they got educated or they got a job or they got married, none of those things were possible for this man. He spends 40 years lame and in an instant he's miraculously healed. And Peter says the reason why he was healed is that it would point to Jesus. Now, quickly, and then I want to point out that parallels to our life. There's really two mistakes regarding miracles that I think we can make inside of the church. And one is a camp that would say, hey, miracles like this never happen. That God can't and doesn't work in that way. Which is no biblical evidence to say that he, he couldn't do. I mean, he's God. He can do anything at any time that doesn't con- contradict his character. So to say he can't do miraculous things is just not true. The other mistake and maybe increasingly more prevalent in today's church, is that God will always heal, and he's always healing if you just have enough faith, which is also not a biblical idea. I mean, the New Testament church, this idea of like this prosperity, if you just have enough faith, then God will always heal the lame person. is just not true. Sometimes he allows you to have some sort of brokenness, sickness, or something in his life And it is a more powerful thing to watch you or me or walk through that, to walk through infertility, to walk through the inability to walk, to walk through challenges and sickness and say, I'm walking through this. But despite all of that, my God is good. He is enough. What's a more powerful testimony? The person who's been sitting in a wheelchair for years and years and years and says, I've been in a wheelchair my whole life. And yet he is enough. Or the person who says, man, one day they were miraculously healed. Some level, I guess it's a matter of opinion, but you can't argue that they're both not powerful. And so the idea that God always heals is simply not true. But what I think is most important is the parallel that we see in this man's story, in your story, and in my story, if you're a follower of Jesus. Because this man experiences a miraculous life change that is meant to point to Jesus. I mean, think about what Peter and John, through Jesus, just gave this man back. They literally gave him his life back. Maybe a better way would be life for the first time. They gave him the ability, you can go to work. You could get married. You can have a life. You can be around other people. You don't have to be carried every single day. Almost like restoring his humanity back. And this is where it becomes an interesting parallel to your life and my life in Christ. Because when we became followers of Jesus, it's as though God brought healing. He brought life change in us to give us more of life back. And I think the spiritual transformation or healing, if you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you've experienced, Candidly is a far more significant, more miraculous thing to point to Jesus' power than any physical healing that could take place. And we don't often think of it that way, but here's why I think that's the case. The ability to physically and radically heal someone, somebody that is in your life that is struggling with cancer or is lame or is blind or is deaf, Jesus over and over, he would heal the deaf, he would heal the sick, he would heal the lame. But his ability to do that is not unique exclusively to Jesus. You ever thought about that? In other words, we live in a world where all the time we see people healed from things and the healing didn't come 
directly from Jesus laying hands on them. There is one area that exclusively Jesus alone can heal, and that is the human soul. If you're not following me, here's what I mean. You, if you're uh, you know, a parent of any kids out there and they've ever broken a bone or you've ever gotten sick and you've gone to a doctor, all of us have seen healings, physical healings take place. Like my hand broke a couple years ago. We went to the doctor, said you got to have surgery, had surgery, and it fixed. I didn't walk out of there that day going, my doctor is a miracle worker. This is unbelievable. We need to gather around and go, waymaker, miracle worker, promise. This doctor is a healer. Because it wasn't a miracle. It was medical. I mean, Jesus, at one point, he causes a woman's fever to go away. And, man, that's miraculous. But that's not exclusive to Jesus. Some of you guys are doctors, and you've prescribed medication that's made stuff go away. It's not a miracle. It's medical. But what is exclusively an act that only Jesus can do, which is why I say the healing spiritually that you and I have received in Christ is far superior, is the healing of the human heart. Second reason why it's a more significant thing, maybe not as sensational, but more significant, the spiritual healing that in Christ we're offered and have received for many of us is the physical problems and physical challenges and physical harm and physical brokenness is a temporary thing. Spiritual brokenness is an eternal thing. This man's problem of lame legs was temporary. It was either going to go away in glory or if you spent eternity away from God, lame legs would be the least of his problems. And so you and I have received something far more superior that this life change, man, and I've seen it over and over because you may be going, what does that even look like and how does that happen? It just in everyday ordinary moments, God begins to come in and he begins to transform and sometimes it's overnight and he breaks addiction But oftentimes, it's just his spirit begins to come in and bring about change in someone's life. That he begins to convict and he begins to take you from the place of going, man, I'm just focused on myself to going, man, I need to ask my wife for forgiveness. Because I was too short in the way that I interacted with her. That's a reflection of a spiritual change that has taken place. I mean, I've worked at the Young Adults for 13 years, and I've just seen up close God take people who are misogynistic men who are just out to, you know, get the next girl in line, and they're all focused on who can I pick up at the club or who can I get at the bar, and God begins to come into life, and they just begin to change, and they go from, you know, trying to pick up a girl, and they just can't even do it anymore because the Spirit begins to, like, break down those walls, and they go from, like, what's up, girl? Do you... uh?" Do you have plans this Sunday for church? Would you like to go? And he just begins to change their appetites, their attitudes. It's a miraculous change that exclusively he can do. And if you're in the room and you haven't experienced any of that, the question maybe you should ask yourself is, why? Because according to the New Testament, Christ begins to change, not perfectly, but he begins to transform and take people like me who were porn addicts or had pornography a part of my story and despite being a follower of Christ, was still present and just through his spirit begins to go, you need to confess and I want freedom from you and begin to experience that. But there is purpose in the miraculous and it is that we would be people who use our story to not say, man, we're better than anybody else. We're just better than we were because of Jesus, better than we would be without Jesus. So first we see the purpose in the miraculous to point to Jesus. And then I think we see an example from Peter 
and that he says this. While the man held on to Peter and John and all the people were running into the colonnade, Peter saw this. He said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power, our own godliness, we made this man walk? And then he launches into a sermon. But before we go into the contents of the sermon, I just want to highlight how Peter attaches purpose to the moment that he attaches purpose in the moment and gives us an example for how you and I can live and experience our purpose in this life by pointing others to Jesus and by in everyday ordinary moments or in extraordinary moments looking to point others to Jesus, that he attaches purpose in the moment. So everybody's running around, they're excited, they've seen these guys that they've walked past for 40 years, man, he's healed, and they're gathering around, and Peter decides, and this is a great chance to introduce and to bring Jesus into the conversation. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is one of the ways that we experience our purpose in Christ is that we live lives looking for ways to introduce Jesus into the conversations, into the places and spaces that God brings you. It's no mistake that you're in the dorm room that you're in, that you work at the company that you're a part of that you're in the family that you're in. And you may go, yeah, but they're not believers. I'm the only believer. I know and God has put you there to look for ways like Peter to introduce and to point people to Jesus. We experience purpose in the moment by looking for ways when coworkers are describing how they're having challenges in just their personal life or man, their marriage is on the rocks to look for ways to introduce, hey, can I tell you where I turn when I'm facing hard times in life, I don't mean to be all like preachy or, you know, give you the wrong impression that anything is perfect with me. I just have found a savior and I have found hope and God is working in my life. And I'm certainly not a perfect husband, but he is helping me be a, more like him, which is helping me be a better husband. That we would look for ways and opportunities to point people to Jesus. And if you want to experience your purpose, it's going to involve you looking to do that. Because God has saved you to send you and to send me. And I think clearly he's at work doing that through many of you. Of looking for ways to share the gospel in everyday, ordinary moments with the people that you're going to interact with. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and 16 we're told that Jesus, he's describing how you, if you're a follower of his, and you probably know the verse, you are the light of the world. And then he says, no one puts a light, puts a fire, a candle, and then puts a bowl over it. Rather, they take a light, especially in that day and age where typically every house had one light. And they put it very strategically in the place that will shine the brightest, where the darkness is surrounding it, and it can push back against that darkness. And Jesus says, my Father in heaven doesn't place lights randomly. You think it's random that you're in the job that you are, the apartment you live in, the street that you live on. And God says, and Jesus said, my God doesn't place lights randomly. And he has put you and placed you on purpose and now, as followers of Jesus, we look for purpose in the moment, for ways and opportunities to share with the waitress you're going to have lunch with today or brunch with after this, with the coworkers that you're going to be with all week, with those you're going to take a work trip and travel on, 
the person you're going to be sitting next to on that plane. That we look to attach purpose inside of the moment. That your purpose at work is not to make money, it's to be a light. Your purpose in your sorority is not to be popular, but to be a light. Your purpose is where you live is not to make people jealous about how well kept your landscaping is, but to be a light. And here's where, like, my heart needs God to move and make me more aware and see more of this, more like him, candidly. Human soul is so hungry for God. It's all around us. And as believers, we have the ability to introduce them to the only thing that satisfies. And yet my temptation is to be apathetic or, man, it's just annoyance. I swear, I got to say, God, will you make me more like you, more like Jesus, more seeing people like you see them? If I'm honest, I can often see people almost like an interruption, like, um, like, an, like an amber alert. You know what an amber alert is? Amber Alert is that thing that you get on your phone that uh, announces, are you guys with me? Do you know what an Amber Alert, do you have that in Alabama? Tell me you have that in Alabama. Okay, good. It's like the one state in the whole country. Or this, joke, or this, this illustration makes no sense. Um, an Amber Alert is that thing on your phone. And for most of us, we're being honest. If it went off on your phone, you, you probably wouldn't even read it. You just quickly move to silence it and turn it off. Maybe you'd read it. But there's a group of people who for sure would read it. Anybody who's connected to that child who's missing. Amber Alert was actually created based on a girl who in 1993 went missing. Her name was Amber. It was in Dallas, Texas, actually where I live. She was out riding a bike one day. She would be 36 today. And she was six at the time. And she rode her bike and she was never seen again. They found her body weeks later and she'd been killed, tragically. And her parents were so heartbroken and they wanted no parent to have to go through this. And so they worked with local officials and they worked and they created this thing that's now become a national, it's everywhere, called the Amber Alert. Now, they attached an acronym to it, but Amber was an actual girl. There's a picture of her on the screen. And like I said, any Amber Alert that goes off, some of us may silence it, but you know who's not silenced it? And you know who's pleading for people to not silence it? And please read it, is the parent separated from their child. When you read the story of the New Testament, really the Bible in general, it's as though God is this heart of a father in heaven who has been separated from his children and has put out an alert and separated and sent out his people because he's got a Kyle alert with the Kyle that works at your office and a Stephanie alert with the person who lives on your street and alerts for people all over and he sent his people out to go point to Jesus It's the only hope in this broken world. And Peter seems to connect those dots, which is why he says, man, there's a God in heaven. And I'm going to take this opportunity to point you to him. And then lastly, I just want to look at the message, the purpose and the message that he shared. Because it's pretty profound what he brings up in this sermon and really every New Testament sermon that there is. Here's what he says. The God of Abraham... Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son, Jesus. So Peter's launching in. Let me get into this sermon. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. Though he had decided to let him go, you disowned 
the holy and righteous one, and ask for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And he attaches that it's by faith in his name that this man you see was made strong. It's by the name of Jesus, faith that comes through him. He's been completely healed. The purpose in the message that Peter launches in and he does what he does over and over. This is, this is every New Testament sermon. Every sermon in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, everywhere you see it involves the same message. It's not the teachings of Jesus. The purpose in the message that we see, they're very purposeful in every message that they go around. They don't say, hey, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say, turn the other cheek. Somebody takes from you and they want you to go one mile, you should go two mile with them. Hey, you should, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, even if you've lusted, you've, they don't go on the teachings of Jesus. They all point to the resurrection of Jesus, that I saw a man die. He went into the ground, he was buried, and he came back alive. And every New Testament sermon, just like this, and just like the one in Acts chapter two, Peter is pointing to, there's a God who was crucified. He was killed and he came back alive. And anyone who trusts in him or puts their trust in him as the death and payment for their sin can have eternal life. Think about the crowd he's preaching to. Remember, I brought up that they were the group that came to the temple three times a day to pray with other Jewish men and women. It's a pretty religious crowd. My guess is there's not many of us in the room, or maybe you, my guess is you don't know anybody that gathers together with other people three times a day to pray, or very few. I mean, this is not some group that is Zacchaeus and the worst of the worst who Jesus also pursues. This is a group who is incredibly religious gathering inside of the temple. And Peter says, you think that your religious actions can earn you a relationship with God. And you have bought a lie. And he points them not to religion, but to the resurrection so that they would have relationship with him. That there is a God who was killed and who came back alive, and I saw it. Which is why I say every New Testament goes around saying, I saw a man die, went into the ground, he came back alive. And anyone who trusts in that resurrection has been given a relationship with God. And he points to it over and over, that the message is not religion. And these people who you think you're going to be saved by how good of a person you are, and how many people that you work with and I work with that we live around think that, man, as long as I'm a good person, and Peter stands up and boldly says, it is not good people who can have a relationship with God. It's people who trust in Jesus. What's interesting is, is this idea that all religions are, are really similar. I mean, you, you hear it. Probably for a lot of us, when you hear that, you go, it kind of tells me you don't know much about religions. That not only do they all teach different things, there's one religion that doesn't teach anything like the rest. Every other religion other than Christianity is based on this idea of what you do, whether it's Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism, that the object of the faith or the person that is fulfilling that faith is you through your prayer, through your obedience, through your actions. And the message of Christianity is that it has nothing to do with you, that you are incapable of earning or having a relationship with God. It has everything to do with Jesus. And Peter looks out in the audience that 
had just gathered there to pray. They see this miraculous work, and he says, there is a God who has sent his own son, and he was crucified by this city. But God was at work in that whole plan, and he's not done with you, and he has offered his son, and that anyone who trusts in him will have resurrection life. He shares that message. And that same message is the one that now we go and share with the world around us. It's not about how good of a person you are or what you do or you haven't done. It's that God has sent his son and that anyone who trusts not in themselves but in Jesus. Because if I'm thinking, man, if I'm a good, God will accept me because I'm a good person, that's trusting in me. If I think God won't accept me because I'm a bad person and I've done, that's trusting in me. The message of Christianity is there is no life eternal life. You cannot have a relationship with God by trusting in you. It only comes through Jesus. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in that. That's the reason you're here, quite frankly. For those of us who have, one of the reasons we're here is to go and spread that message to a world that is in desperate need of that. Peter, it's interesting The distance between this moment and his denial of Christ is not long. It's weeks, days, hardly months. In other words, right before Jesus was crucified, Peter denies him three different times. After following Jesus for three years, on the night of Jesus' worst moment in need, Peter sees Jesus arrested and we're told that he follows him and he watches him at a distance and three different times, Peter sitting around a fire denies that I ever knew him. He's sitting there and he's watching Jesus on trial from a distance and somebody at the campfire he's sitting at goes, hey, you, you, you have a Galilean accent. You, you sound like you're from you know, Birmingham. You say, I can hear the draw in your accent. You are with him. And he says, no, no, I don't know that man. You gotta be someone else. And then it happens again, then it happens again. And three times we're told he denies Jesus in his worst hour of need. And then 50 days later, he's boldly standing in front of this group saying, there is no other way that you can have eternal life. There is no other way any person who's ever lived will spend eternity with God. Anyone can have a relationship with God other than the one who was killed, who died, and who came back alive. And God has sent him into this world so that you would have life and forgiveness and a relationship with him. What changed in Peter? So so he gained some sort of incredible clarity and focus. In my house, we, we moved into, when we first got married, we bought this TV off the person who lived in the house, and it was a 3D TV, basically a 3D capability. And I remember one day I turned it on and I was excited. I'm going to watch a movie in 3D and I go to watch it and everything's fuzzy. Man, I just got ripped off. And then I realized, I bet there's got to be like glasses or something. And I find them, pull them out and put them on. It all came into focus. We're told the moment it all came into focus for Peter where he had his own 3D focus moment and it wasn't three dimensional. It was third day resurrection and everything changed for Peter. And he goes from Peter the coward to Peter the courageous, that there is a God and my purpose now as those who know him and I who know him is to point other people to him because this world is in desperate need of a savior and people are going to hell. 
And God has put me and placed me here on purpose. And the reason why so many Christians are so bored out of their mind is they go to work and they think that life is about them and life is about finding more stuff and more happiness and getting the lake house and I finally have the boat and they don't experience their purpose because they don't share the message of Jesus with the world that is on fire around them. And God has put you where you are to share that message, to point with the miraculous and life-changing your story. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. There's nothing good about me, except for him. He's put me here, seize the moment of like, God, you put me on purpose, God. Will you help me be brave? I'm going to fly home tonight. I'm going to get on a plane. My temptation, I'm going to be a coward. I'm not going to want to share the gospel. God, will you help me? When I point people not to religious actions or, hey, you should try to be better. Hey, you should stop sleeping with her. But point people to Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And let him bring that change. If you're here today and you've never trusted in that, God's invitation for you, his purpose for you, is that you would know him. And he's so in love with you that he gave his own life. That you would. That you come to a place where you go, man, I'm, not gonna, I'm no longer going to trust in me. I'm going to trust in Jesus. And for those of us who do, like I said, our invitation is to go experience our purpose by letting the world know. Let me pray. Father, thank you. God, I thank you for Auburn Community Church. I thank you for this body. I thank you for the ways you are using them in powerful ways throughout this city, throughout Birmingham, Huntsville, Lake Martin, throughout all over this area and many others for Miles and his leadership. I pray your blessing on it. I pray, God, you would make all of us more like Jesus and make all of us more living on purpose. Start with me. Give us eyes to see like you. For anyone who hasn't trusted in that, would today be their day? In Christ's name, amen. We're gonna have a chance now before we go into worship for you guys to do what you weekly get to do or weekly takes place here, if it is your first time, for you to take communion and for you to remember the broken body, spilt blood of Christ and have a chance to pray over wives and families together and to remember the blood of our Savior spilt for you and for me. If you're not a believer in Christ and you haven't made that decision and you're not ready to make that decision, that's totally okay. But this is really kind of a family thing. And we'd encourage you, it's just a time maybe to reflect and, and think on what you do believe. But communion is really for the family of Christ. And then in a minute, we're going to have a chance to worship together.